0: Love, Talk Radio.
1: Hi, welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, Pediatric Speech-Language Pathologist.
0: And I'm Kate Hensler, Developmental Interventionist. How are you tonight, Ms. Laura?
1: I am great, but did you hear all that terrible static? Are you still hearing that? No. Are you... Are you hearing it? Oh, maybe it's just no. I am. Okay. Well, I hope that's not problematic tonight. Um, I am great. How are you? I'm doing very well, thanks. I was a little late getting on uh, tonight, and you beat me to it, so that's a first, and I'm always giving it, well, maybe not a first, but maybe, ooh, in the maybe <laughs> 10 times, maybe. <laughs> it doesn't the whole happen four a lot. Years, yeah, we've got our show because I was posting a picture that we took yesterday. I don't think we posted a picture in a while uh, of us on Facebook. I think early on with the show, when I still did post about the show every week on uh, teachmetotalk.com, on the website, I would post pictures, but I haven't had an updated picture. So for those of you wondering how Kate and I are aging, you put that on uh oh. <laughs> Teach me to talk uh Facebook page. And so we must be a good uh, one of
0: you if you if you lead in with that. Don't post <laughs> how I'm aging.
1: <laughs> you couldn't really see the
0: picture without your uh cheaters, could you? So you don't yes, know, you know had how to see the pictures and I'm like, I can't see that. They're all beautiful <laughs> to me. That's a good thing about losing your eyesight. When you don't have your readers everything looks really good. You just pretend you see it.
1: Well, it's a really cute picture, and so I posted it when I did our little summary about uh, the show tonight, and so that's on there. And, you know, we already have a caller, so let's just go oh, ahead good. and get right on that. I was hoping we'd have a caller tonight. Hi, caller. How are you? Hello? Are you calling in to ask a question? Hello? Okay, I don't think so. Maybe they just wanted to listen. Okay, uh, let's just do our normal kind of stuff that we do at the beginning. Let me do our announcements. Uh, I have my conference schedule, and hello, Georgia. If you're a new listener and have gotten your mailer this week and are tuning in for the first time, I would sing Georgia Georgia on my mind song because that's every time I say Georgia, I want to break out into, into that song. Um, so if you're listening, For the first time, again, welcome to the show. And I will be in Atlanta on September 27th and 28th, in Columbus, Ohio on October 11th and 12th, and then in Chicago on October 25th and 26th. And you can find out all the information about my conference um, schedule at teachmetotalk.com. And you can register and uh, sign up there. And we have a two-day format this year. I'm not going to talk about that again this week. But if you want more information, Please check out the website. I would love an opportunity to meet you. And I always love it when I'm there, and I always do sign-ins and am at the table. And a lot of times that's new for people. They never they don't really see the speaker before the speaker comes out to um, talk. And so I love it when I'm standing there and somebody says, ah, I know your voice, because they're podcast <laughs> listeners. And so that's always kind of cool to me when somebody will jump in and say that. So wanted to mention that. So if you are coming and you're a regular podcast listener, please tell me because I, I love hearing that and love getting to meet people in person. So that's a lot of fun. Okay. Any more announcements before we get rolling with this week's topic, Kate? Uh, Nope, not for me. Oh, I was going to say what we were doing yesterday with the picture. Uh, it was, you know, my son is getting married in... Oh, a little over a month, and Kate came to one of their bottle showers yesterday and got the most masculine gift there, the knife set that was on their registry. So thank you so much for that. He loved it, and we went to see his cute little apartment today, and he and Johnny were checking out the knives. So that was a big hit, and thank you very, very much.
0: Well, I divulged at the shower that the young man... At Bed Bath Beyond, confided that he would rather get the kni- knives than the pot. So I decided, okay, that'd be good. Since Tyler probably had a hand in choosing the knives, that would be something Bill would want to choose as well. So I thought, oh, that's fun. So I'm glad he has good knives.
1: He does. He does. And we were making sure he had food today to cut with those knives. So that was good. We'll stock up, good for mom and dad. Aww. Oh. I know it was a fun day, and we got to see our older son too that we haven't seen in a couple of weeks. It was a lot of fun. We had a great day. All right, I am having Hi. a hard time staying on topic already, so it should be a fun show. But let's uh, get going with uh, farm animals. Now, this is part two of or a continuation from last week's show. We spent the hour last week talking about how to use farm animal toys with toddlers who may not be that interested in playing with farm animal toys yet or usually the case is they're not quite developmentally ready and their play skills aren't as advanced as you would need them to be for them to really start to engage in pretend play. So last week we spent an entire hour talking about those kinds of early play activities that we do again before children may be really ready to do a lot of sit down play activities and we talked about how I consider farm animals and my little sequence of play a vocabulary building activity and that really comes after children like more movement based activities more cause and effect toys where they're working on again simple problem solving and other kinds of sit-down activities. And so this would be um, an activity that would come after children have mastered those earlier kinds of play activities. And sometimes I think that we just naturally would, uh, when a kid doesn't appear very interested in playing with a toy or a set of toys like farm animals, that we might say, well, he just doesn't like it or he's not interested, when a lot of times it's that they're not quite ready developmentally. And so last week, again, we spent the whole show talking about some really ways that you could engage kids who are right on the um you know, who were borderline and not really being able to play. And so this week we're going to take it a step further and talk about uh that next level of activities that we would do with the child after he or she, um, some interest in playing, after they were able to stay with you for a minute or two, after they were really in past that developmental level, and I would say kids' needs are probably functioning closer to that 18-month level developmentally before these next activities are going to be appropriate. Would you agree with that age-wise, Kate? We haven't
0: really talked about that, but. Yeah, um, I, and I don't know that I had necessarily assigned an age, but I would say 18 months. Most 18-month-old kids can play with one thing for, you know, a reasonable amount of time, and their focus is pretty good, and their receptive language skills are good enough that they're, the they're, where they're starting to be pretty meaningful.
1: So, yeah, I'd say 18 months, I'd expect them to do pretty well with it. Exactly. And so what does that mean for a mom who's saying, I don't know where my kid is developmentally. Let's talk about some things that 18-month-olds or when we have children who we say would be functioning near the 18-month-level things that we would expect them to do. That would be, again, to sit with you for a few minutes. It would be that they've mastered those earlier kinds of play that we talked about. Language-wise, they seem to be understood. Standing a little bit more, and Kate mentioned receptive language, and that's exactly what receptive language refers to. It's how a child comprehends language. And so, again, that's starting to move along, usually, before we're going to see children display lots and lots of interest in this kind of play. And again, that is so critical to think about, because you don't ever want to assume that a child's not really interested or doesn't like something just that he's not ready to play uh, with that kind of toy yet. So, what would you do for a kid who you felt like, "Gosh, you know, mm, I think he would—he still wants to sit with me and play, but I don't know about that whole receptive language piece. What are you meaning by that?" This kind of play is excellent for working on those early receptive language concepts and so that a child is starting to identify some uh, words or identify some of these animals so that you could say, if you had a pile of your little animals out, you could say, where's the duck, where's the duck, where's the duck? And a kid reach for the duck and get the duck and pay attention that you've even asked for something and tried to respond so if you have a little guy who's not interested or not responding at all or still kind of doing his own thing, uh, you know that you've got some work to do with the receptive language if they're not linking that meaning. And again, a lot of parents can be fooled and think this is really a behavior issue or this is really an attention issue when really when a kid is not responding to that kind of, uh, direction or command that, it's, that he doesn't understand the word. He has no idea of what you're really asking him to do. And so you want to be sure that you don't mistake a receptive language issue for something else. So we really, really at this phase with Play with Toddlers have to do everything we can to help them link meaning with what we're doing. And the best way to do that, again, is to keep it really simple and keep it really, really fun, and you have to be super repetitive. And that's what happens a lot is don't you think um, therapists who maybe aren't as experienced with early intervention or parents who aren't quite, they may be talking to their children, but a lot of times will miss how simple it needs to be in this early kind of teaching with a toy like this. Don't you agree
0: Yes, and I will say that's probably something that parents, when they're paying attention to what I'm doing um, early on in sessions, say, "Yeah, I realize I probably don't say it enough times." Now they, you know, they begin to see, "Ooh, you're really repetitive," um, and that seems to be an early observation of a lot of parents to say, "Hmm, you know, yeah, I talk, but I say all kinds of different things, and I." You know, they don't say the same thing over and 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 over again. Right. And it can be kind of hard to get into that mode in the beginning, I think, for parents, you know, because it's not a natural way necessarily to talk to kids or talk in general. But Right. Yeah. And so, so if yeah.
1: if you were going to, let's say that we had our, and another thing that I haven't mentioned yet is using a little, a few more props at this phase. So you might be using three or four different farm animals and a barn or three or four different animals and the tractor. And so you can bring in more props and more things to talk about and more things to, to do and we talk a lot, and speech pathologists and other developmental interventionists and other early interventionists will say, narrate your play, narrate what you're doing. But Kate and I are saying you still have to, when you're doing that, you can't necessarily talk like you would to an older child or like you would to, certainly to an adult when you're playing. you know. And, and the whole narration piece, too, I think a lot of times is still not simple enough or boiled down enough, like you would never say, oh, we're going to get out these farm animals and play together today, and I have a duck, and I have a cow, and there's the tractor, and there's the barn. And a lot of parents would think, oh, well, that's pretty good narration of what you're doing. And what Kate and I want to encourage you to do is to make it more simple than that and more repetitive so that you would be more like the earlier example that I gave with, look, duck, ooh, duck, quack, 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 duck. Here's your duck. Whoa. Get that duck. Where's your duck? Chummy duck. And so you're saying your keyword, which is duck. You're saying it multiple times, repeating it over and over, and you're still keeping it pretty animated and pretty simple. And some parents, like Kate, you pointed out, will say, Oh, I haven't been quite as repetitive. A lot of times parents aren't as, um, and therapists too. <laughs> aren't as engaged or as up or as animated or fun-sounding as you need to be, too. And that just changing your tone and making your voice sound more excited is really a key factor in getting a lot of children, one, to just attend to you, two, to let you participate and play with them, uh, and three, to make it, more meaningful so that they actually it's not just blah blah they're actually assigning begin to assign meaning and begin to understand gosh every time she says duck she's pointing at that yellow thing or she's holding that Mm -hmm. that that whatever your duck looks like she's referring to that and they start to again link meaning and you start to see their comprehension get better and when you're saying "get the duck," they actually start looking like you're going to follow your direction, and that's what you really want to make sure that you're doing, and how you want to talk to a child, especially in this phase of language development. And I always tell parents uh, children that aren't talking that we identify if we identify that receptive language that they have a delay in that area as well that I always have to say we have to do something different than what you've already done because if your child were going to learn how to understand language and how to talk just from what you were already doing, I wouldn't even be here. You know, he would not have qualified for services. So we have to make a change. And, again, sometimes um, you can get a little bit of resistance from that because the parent will say well i don't really want i you know i've read in baby books or other books or parenting magazines that you're just supposed to talk like you would normally and that a child is just going to get it and again i always go back to if that were going to work um, you know it would have already worked so we have to change input so that we can meaning what talk to kids so that they can change output meaning what they're able, what directions they're able to follow and what they're eventually able to say. And so we have to be sure that we're doing the things that research tells us works to help a child begin to understand language and eventually again be able to repeat those same words and start to talk and communicate uh, verbally. And so the, the first piece with really learning how to talk so that you engage a child and really making it simple and really making it fun is just critical, and again if you don't if you've been kind of monotone or kind of more adult like I would really challenge you to change your approach and to make it more exciting and make your voice more fun sounding and again that that simplification piece and repetitive piece is just huge so Kate again, I'm going to put you on the spot if you were doing a little Narration with say a cow or a pig or something like that. What are some things you might say to a kid if you were working with with him?
0: Hmm, well, it would definitely depend on the kid. Um, Can I assume he's at 18 months developmentally? Yeah, let's just assume that. Yeah. I'm going to assume that he is, in fact, at 18 months developmentally across the board. Um it, knowing that, I always start with, well, as you did, label, 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 label the object, the animal, do lots of the actual sounds. Um, beyond that, I always go to what I refer to as everyday things, like I would have the animals eat, and I would have the animals sleep, and I would have the animals walk, and I would have the animals... Um, Well, those would be my first ones that I would do, eating, sleeping, walking, (laughs) running, depending if it's an animal, you know, what kind of animal it might run. Um, So I just want to work in activities and daily things or everyday things that kids are familiar with. All kids eat, all kids sleep, all kids um, move in some variety or another. So those are things that they know and it's you know when you go with what they know and what's part of their everyday life it's much more meaningful um so it doesn't necessarily have to be related to animals it just the best is what relates to the kids and those are things they know and when you model those things they tend to understand them and want to imitate you which is what we want them to do
1: Exactly, and that's really teaching a kid how to play. If you're just sitting with a kid and waiting for him to pick up the next animal, and again, a lot of a lot of adults miss this because they'll say, well, I'm supposed to narrate, I'm supposed to talk about what he's doing. And so they just kind of sit pretty passively, and as the child might pick up a cow, they might say, cow, cow says moo. What does the cow say? Tell me what the cow says. <laughs> What's the cow say? I know you know. I told you yesterday. What's the cow say? And, again, when I'm doing this, I'm I'm not making fun of a particular parent. I'm not being – I'm trying to be facetious and funny. And, and, again, I'm not doing it to be derogatory at all. I just want to give some pretty blatant examples so that you can recognize oh, gosh, there's a different way to do it, and that's not what she's saying to do. And I think sometimes when you give a negative example, oh, some people just kind of take it wrong and feel like that maybe, again, we're pointing out um, things in a negative way. But, again, I've just found with parents sometimes and working over the years, and even with therapists, if you don't really, you have to talk about, what to do which is what you're doing but you don't kind of have to point out what not to do so and a lot of times parents will tell me oh i used to do i used to do that and then i heard you say on the show not to do it that way so i stopped and so yeah. again i just <laughs> i stopped doing it that way. i started doing it this way and so i realized that's not,
0: exactly how i did it yeah
1: yeah And it's not to pick on anyone, and it's certainly not to point out inadequacies or, uh, again, be negative or bash anyone. It's just to say, don't do it like that anymore. Try something different. So when you're playing like that, what Kate has said that she does is she takes the animal and she makes the animal do something. And you're not... Saying it when the kid does it, Kate. You're actually grabbing the farm animal and making the animal. You're modeling, oh, You're making absolutely. the animal. Oh,
0: absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Uh huh.
1: Over yeah, and, so- and
0: over in the most exaggerated and dramatic way possible. They don't just take a drink; they slurp. They don't just eat; they, you know, act like it's their last meal. They. Everything is very exaggerated and. So
1: do some of that. So just act it out for us now. <laughs> How would you do that? Are you embarrassed that I've asked you this? Do
0: you just want me to do it? You are not. I don't do these things on
1: air. yet. let you do these things on air. <laughs> No, but if you had a puppy and you were you were playing with a dog with the farm set, and you, if the dog were going to drink and you were saying, Oh dog, dog's thirsty, Look, dog needs a drink, let's drink actually, I always start
0: if if my dog's thirsty, he's first hot, actually, I always do hot before I do thirsty, so I'd say, Oh, dog's hot." because they all love that open mouth, stick your tongue yeah. out pant thing. And, you know, yeah. for the kids who are non-imitators verbally, that's something that we can get early on. So I really always start with that. So I'd say, he's hot, he's hot. <laughs> and then I try and work in drink and thirsty, because I think it's surprising how many kids don't understand what thirsty means, and parents always exactly. assume they do, and it's pretty abstract. So I always say, you know, dog's hot, hot, he's thirsty, he needs a drink, get him a drink. Drink, drink, and then hopefully I have something, whether it be a little bucket or there's a little trough with the farm set, or and again, don't get hung up on it being perfect, but um, some approximation of water, and then yes, they go over and they make a big uh, or whatever goofy, slurpy noise I can do, and that's about it
1: for me. <laughs> you did a you did great modeling that. But oh, see, thank you. Is my point is when we're doing this, this is just automatic and plus you wouldn't really say dog's hot, let's get a drink. Where's the water? <laughs> you know, it's going to be more than that. You're going to really turn it on and really exaggerate. The other thing that you do when you're playing with the kids with farm animals like this is you are right down there with them. So if you're burning, your animals are on the floor. You are on the floor, too. You're not really narrating, you know, as you sit up on the couch and fold laundry or whatever. You've got to be down there on the floor, in the thick of things, holding the dog, making it go over to the water and, again, modeling all of that. And your face is right there, right in your little friend's face or your child's face so that he or she include you in play and so that he's listening to your words and so that he's participating with you. It's not a passive activity where, again, he's going to pick up an animal and you narrate, you know, oh, there's cat, you know, and again, you just kind of narrate what he's doing. You don't do that. You sit down and play with the child. It's not observation it's intervention. It's therapy. So you're there together. And I love what you said about using basic actions in play that a child would already recognize. When you're doing that, you're not only working on the name of the farm animal, but you're also introducing verbs. And I, in uh, last week's Therapy Tip of the Week, I talked about how important and how great farm animals are for teaching verbs and for working on kinds of words beyond nouns because so many times with late talkers, that's what we focus on. We just focus on teaching cow, pig, horse, duck, you know, without taking it a step further and having them follow some directions and really work on their receptive language and assign meaning to words beyond labels. And so many of our little nouns are labels. And, again, a lot of our little friends are late talkers, And even in typical language development, you see tons of nouns dominate those early vocabularies. But, boy, verbs are important, too, in those action words. So so farm animals are great for teaching those early things. And Kate's point is so great about that as well because those are actions that children probably already understand and things that they've already linked meaning with so that when you can say eat, they know what that means. Uh, And you don't want to just assume that if you are talking about it, too, that a child understands, if you're not seeing evidence of that. So if you're pretending like you want your horse to walk and the child isn't, you know, just saying, make your horse you walk. Don't let me see. Walk, 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 walk. And the child isn't doing that. You take your horse and make it walk, or if you have to, do some hand over hand. And that's a therapist's term for, Meaning that you're going to place your hand on the child's hand as he holds the horse and physically make the toy move. And walk, 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 or run, run. You know, whatever your action is there. Same thing with sleeping. You know, let's make pig go night night. It's sleepy. Pig needs to sleep. Let's sleep. And so if the child is not, looking like he or she knows what you're talking about, you take the pig and you take the child's hand and you help the child, you know, uh, make the pig lay down. And so you're going to put it on its side and then you would do whatever you do for sleep or for night-night. You could snore. You could do a big shhh, night-night, night-night. You know, whatever you're going to do to make that more fun and more enticing and more engaging. And remember, we're helping a child learn what that verb means. And again, the, the the other thing with that is you're helping a child learn how to follow directions. And so if you have a child that you're working with who's not really giving you much, uh, you know, doesn't really respond when, you, when you're asking him to do things, please don't always, that's just a behavioral thing, that he's just, not interested in it, you know, this is how you teach a child to follow directions in play. And so that you're starting with this kind of really simple activity. And, again, it's usually more enticing because it's, it's pretty fun when you're doing those things. And you want to, again, if you have a kid who seems kind of checked out on you, that means you got to get up to the next level, <laughs> You ratchet it up a notch, so that you are keeping him with you and making it, again, more fun and more um, enticing for him to want to stay there and do it with you. If you're trying to do a lot of this with a child and he or she keep running away, chances are that you're talking too much and you're still above where they are developmentally. So you would want to go back and use some of those ideas that we talked about last week. and we're not going to repeat those again, but go back and listen because that would tell you where that child is functioning developmentally with play, and he's got to learn how to stay with you and engage you for longer periods of time and for whatever reason you know it's a sensory thing or again um he's just not there yet, so you'll you'll if you have a kid that you're trying some of these ideas with, you may have to take it a step back and then work back up to these kinds of things. But the main thing you're doing at this phase of therapy with a child is really helping them understand more words so that eventually you're going to hear those words and um, get them to be a little more imitative and repetitive. I like the thing that you said, Kate, that you're doing is that you always work in sounds. But if a child is not really ready to repeat real words yet, you're still giving them something else to imitate. Are you there? Can you hear me? Yeah. I can't hear
0: you. Can you hear me now?
1: I can hear you now, yeah.
0: Okay. Um, Yeah, the sounds, you know, a lot of times that's the only verbal output you're going to get from kids is the goofy animated play sound stuff in the beginning. And it seems to make it more fun for kids, and when you add that, what seemed boring sometimes automatically becomes that much more fun. So it serves a number of purposes, but it definitely is an important part of the formula.
1: It is. You can give, again, we um, looked at the model from uh, Building Verbal Imitation Toddlers, which is a therapy model. Um, And if you're a new listener to this, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about, but that's my... Therapy manual, my book that was released earlier this year, and it really talks about how so many children that are late like talkers, we just start with trying to get them to repeat real words. So in this case, it would be uh, you know a word like the name of the animal or a word like the verb, uh, like go or eat or drink or sleep. And so many children are not at that level verbally yet, and so when you work on the prerequisites, like imitating what we would call um, play vocalizations or vocalizations in play, imitating the sound for the animal or imitating like um, Kate modeled a second ago the panting for a dog or imitating a tongue click that you're going to make the horse walk and you're going to do, you know, those kinds of Oral imitations, or even if it's verbal, and again, it's not a real word yet. You know, it might be a, the if you were making um, your duck fly, you might do a shh, sh- 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 you know. Or if you were making, um, oh, give me another example, Kate. Okay, can you think of one that I haven't already used? If you were making your like a licking sound, you know. or slurping or something like that, again, that's not a real word that we can spell yet, but it's so important, especially for late talkers, to begin to be able to imitate anything with their mouths. And it really teaches them that they have control and that they can purposefully make their mouths move And for toddlers and young children, it's developmentally appropriate for them to want to try a lot of those kinds of things before they would ever even really get to words. Um, That's why when you're working with, you're typically developing babies at six months um, or even a little later, nine or ten months, if they hear someone cough, they want to try to cough too. And that's a fun little game. Did you play that game with your own Girls take when they were babies. Sure, take coughing. Yeah, <laughs> and so it's that same theory: is that you're going to hear a lot of those things, or just a lot of noise in general, and see a lot of attempts to imitate with their mouths and with their faces, and even with their little bodies before you hear them start to imitate words. And when we're looking at how children really learn to talk, that whole imitation piece is so critical. And, again, kids learn how to do it first with actions in play so that when you're using farm animals, uh, uh, you know, learning how to, you know, make the dog run or learning how to you've taken your your goat and you're going to, Walk it up the side of the barn, and you would want a child to, you know, make his animal climb up there too. Or you can get to the top and, you know, make your animal jump off the barn. You know, it'd be easier. And you want a kid doing that too, and imitating those actions. That kind of imitation comes first. And next, it would be a child imitating with gestures. Or uh, the the next logical step after those early gestures would be. Uh, sign language so you have a child learning how to imitate signs in the context of this play and then you would have a kid learning how to do things with his mouth like click his tongue or you would say you know give your puppy a kiss your puppy wants a kiss kiss your puppy and the child you know lean forward make a pucker with his lips and kiss his or her animal either in imitation of you or following that direction and so then the child would start to maybe imitate some animal sounds. But you only get to words after you've done all of these other things, and that's my point. It's a really pretty uh, logical progression that a child learns how to imitate. And if that's a new, if this is new theory for you, if you've never thought about this, never heard about this, have no really idea what I'm talking about, <laughs> Uh, my book, Building Verbal Imitation and Toddlers, will outline it. It's a real step by step therapy guide so that you can look at some of that and get some additional ideas. But farm animals are one of my go to activities when I get a kid who's really learning how to do a lot of math movements, which is that book is organized in levels, and it's a level three activity or those early play vocalizations like we would would count for animal sounds and that's a level four. And so again, that those things come before you're typically going to hear a lot of words. So it's a farm animals are a great, great, great tool to use for working on those kinds of early things. The reason I think it works so well is in or any kind of toy is because you're taking the focus off the kid's mouth. And that's so important for so many of our kids because they get um, Especially with motor planning issues, when you when you have the focus all be about you know say it, tell me, you say it, it's your turn to talk. I hear you. Using a toy as a prop or as your tool again reduces that pressure. It makes it more fun. It makes it more developmentally appropriate, and you'll get a lot better results out of so uh, just a vast a uh, greater number of children than you would that direct one-on-one. I said it, now you say it. I said it, now you say it. And in my opinion, toddlers just aren't really ready for that kind of um, approach. I mean, how do you feel about that? Well, uh, toddlers with
0: motor planning difficulties certainly aren't ready for that, or they wouldn't be toddlers with motor planning difficulties. Right. So... <laughs> Uh, maybe a typically developing kid, you know, a lot of, lot, hey, my kids were little parrots. You know, I said dog, they said dog. I said big dog, they said big dog. It was pretty much that easy. But we're not talking about kids who are really that easy. I think, for yes, for apraxic kids in particular, Laura, I'll say the word. Motor planning kids, apraxic kids, whatever, those kids who don't have a firm connection between the word in their head and how to make their mouth do it, they can't imitate verbally to save their little souls these kinds of things are great i mean they just it's something that they usually can do and it gives them some idea that gee maybe i have a shot at these words because i'm at least able to get something out like she got out i mean you are building that verbal imitation as your title says but um yeah i think it's great for those kids
1: Yeah, it really is, and it does take the pressure off, and it, again, makes it a ton more fun. And usually for young children, anything that's more fun is going to um, make it more likely that they participate, that they stay with you, and they don't even really, I think, get that they're working on language, which is great because that's how you want it to be. You want it to be really natural and really um, playful so that they're learning while having a great time all at the same time. All right. The next kind of target that you can do with farm animals, and, we, you know, we've already talked about the name, so that would be our nouns. We've already talked about actions, which would be our verbs. The next kind of word that or language target that I work on with farm animals a lot are prepositions, and these would be our location words. And the prepositions that are, usually come first when children are learning uh, these kinds of words and again they have to understand the word they have to be able to comprehend it follow a direction with it in it know what you're talking about long before they're able to say a word but the words that are appropriate at this level would be up down in out off and on and those are your six uh, prepositions that you're going to be targeting and if you're using a barn or if you're using a tractor or some other prop with your farm animal, you already have everything you need to teach those concepts and teach those words. And again, please don't dismiss the child has to understand it and has a firm grasp of what in the barn means versus out of the barn, what on the barn means versus off the barn. And so you'll you'll have lots of opportunities to teach these kinds of things as you're playing together. Now, some of our children with receptive language issues, if the issue has been pretty significant, you may have to teach those concepts or those words not in pairs. And I think it just kind of comes instinctively to us as parents and as therapists to think that we're going to teach them as opposites, like up versus down, in, without an off versus on. But so many of our little friends with language delays, will not firmly grasp what you mean unless you teach them separately and not try to always um, bunch them together. Our children with auditory processing issues, meaning that they hear the word, they might even be able to say it, but they don't always connect the meaning accurately, may even misuse some prepositions. You know, you're putting it, Um, in and they're saying out because that's what you've labeled (laughs) as you've taught it and they, you know, you've always taught in and out at the same time and they just kind of have learned that that word comes next and haven't really grasped that know what you're talking about is putting that animal maybe in the silo or in the stall or whatever you're playing with the barn. So you want to be really, really careful as a parent and as a therapist, that you're monitoring and that you're making sure that children learn those correctly. That doesn't always happen with language delay, kids, but I've had it happen a number of times. You've seen that before, haven't you, Kate?
0: (sighs) Okay, true confessions. I make the mistake of teaching them together. So, yes, I see it happen on a fairly regular basis.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it's kind of... I mean, you do think about teaching them together a lot. And I'm not saying I I always. I'm
0: I'm being honest. (laughs) I make that mistake. I'm going to try and do better on that. (laughs) Yeah, but
1: that's that's what's happened for, and I've had, you know, and you know the reason that I know this so well is from personal experience where I've had a, a kid that I'm saying, You know, put it in, put it in. And they put it in, and they look at me and say, out. And I I go, okay, let's take it out. And that's not what they meant. And I think, oh, boy, they've just linked Mm -hmm. in and out go together. And -hmm. that's what's happened here. I've got to go back and teach in all by itself. And we're going to put a ton of stuff in, 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 in. And we're only going to talk about in for several sessions. And then we're going to talk about out. And I've had it happen on more than one occasion. As I'm talking about this, I'm seeing my little friend's faces from the past who (laughs) taught me that lesson (laughs) that you can't (laughs) always teach them in pairs. And it does make sense to teach in pairs, but especially our our little friends with auditory processing issues and especially our little friends with more significant cognitive delays. And they, a lot of times, can mislearn a word because we've bombarded them with too much new stuff. We try to teach them too many new words um, in one session. Or even over time, and you're thinking, oh, I'm working on prepositions. I'm just going to teach it all together. For some children, that will work. But for some children, it absolutely will not work. And so if you have a child who's not a great follower of directions and who doesn't do a lot of your follow a lot of directions or a lot of commands on request, then that's a big red flag that you should be teaching words separately and slowing way down and working on up, up, up. That's another one is I'll I'll be making my animal climb up the barn and before I can even say up, 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 the kid is saying down, 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 down while we're moving it up. You know, so if you've <laughs> seen a child, if you're seeing that, Just know that you're going to have to back up and reteach it and only teach one of those concepts at a time. Again, boy, have I learned that lesson the hard way. And
0: I see it with stop and go a lot. Yeah. Yeah, uh, because again, I've taught them together because to me that makes sense. You know, with right. certain toys, it stops, it goes, it stops, it goes, and they're they're into doing it. So I'm labeling it, but then before long, I realize they're saying stop, but they're making it go. And right, go, let's go.
1: It's happened with me yeah. with with a lot of ver- even verbs like stop and go, open and close. I've had mm-hmm. kids mess that up before. They're yeah. saying in and and they yeah. yeah, yeah, and they're <laughs> like, really oh. meaning close, close. Shut it, shut it. Mm-hmm. And so you, re- when you see that, just know that that's a big, um, you know, cautionary uh, signal that their little systems are overloaded, and you've got to really back up and teach um, more slowly and teach one concept at a time and make sure that they have one part of that mastered before you teach the opposite thing. And, again, that gives you great information about the child's learning style. You know that you're just going to have to be more repetitive, that you're going to have to not have a ton of goals, that you really have to water it down and make it more simple. Uh, Otherwise, they're not going to learn it. And And when I see a kid like that and have thought, whoa, Laura, you have really messed up here, back up. And start to teach at a slower pace, then it's amazing because they actually learn more, and they are able to almost instantly make better progress because I'm meeting them where they are developmentally and doing you know teaching them in a way that makes more sense to them so actually you'll you'll do a lot better for those kinds of kids progress wise uh therapists that have made that mistake if you slow way down. Their, their rate of learning will actually speed up a little bit because you're not trying to teach too much at one time. But it's a good look right. to learn.
0: I've yeah. had it happen with um a fair number of kids on the spectrum who are pretty echolalic, and they'll pop out the words, but they don't necessarily get the meaning as they're popping out right. the words. And that's when that red flag always goes up for me. Uh-oh. You
1: know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. he's saying it, Expresses but he doesn't, doesn't know. He does no. past the receptive skills, yeah. Yeah, so. and so we have to be really, really careful with that kind of thing. Other things that are great with farm animals, I do a lot of little school routines or a little, lot of little play routines with farm animals, and the barn is so great for that. You can do knock on the door, but you're saying, knock, 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 knock. Who's there? Who is it? And a lot of kids oh excuse me, I just It's gone. A lot of kids will start to pick up that verbal routine and you will start to hear some imitations and that kind of um play routine where they've heard it over and over and over. Another one that I'll do with um the farm is I'll make them climb up to the top of the barn and have the animal go up, 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 up. And then you can do a big down and have it jump. Or we'll get to the top with up, 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 up. and Let's jump. One, two, three, jump down. And, again, kids will try to imitate that that last word and they're saying the down. And even if they're just going, ah, I know that they're trying to say down with me because we've modeled it over and over again. Verbal routines are really important, and the Building Verbal Imitation in Toddler's book talks about using verbal routines, and that just really means that you're saying the same kinds of words over and over and over so that you make that speech become more automatic. We use tons of these kinds of phrases when we play with children. You know, we'll say, ready, set, and expect a child to fill and go. That's what happens when we're counting, when we're doing one, two, three. And so it's a great therapy technique. So many children respond so positively to that method. And, again, I believe you're going to hear lots of those kinds of words, the words that are really associated and maybe um, not limited to a certain context, but certainly more you're more apt to hear that word, excuse me, within a play routine or within a specific context long before you would hear it just in another activity I saw a sweet little girl uh, in my office this past week who had a lot of her words in verbal routines and her mom had the therapy manual and so she was already really working on that and she said that's when she really started to talk it's when she made sure she had so many verbal routines associated with playing and with you know, just their things that they did at home, little. Um, you know, even with their um, daily routines, and she said that's when she started to really notice that her little girl built in the next word or popped out the next word. It's when she got so purposeful about creating a lot of those little um, verbal routines, and it was so nice to see that in her. And it was her little girl too couldn't uh, really imitate a ton of words yet. But she could fill it in if that was the next word, you know, anticipated. So you can do, you can come up with a lot of your own little routines uh, with playing with the farm animals. Songs are another um, very similar to verbal routines, and another part of that theory where you're singing the same song and last what we talked about. Old McDonald had a farm, and then we talked about that song that I sing all the time, Animals on the Farm. And once you've sung those songs over and over and over, you sing them and then you stop and you wait for the child to fill in the last word. And, again, that's a technique that works beautifully uh, for some children, children on the spectrum typically get a lot of their early words in this way. They've learned the routine. They expect that that word is going to be there. And, you know, they surprise you and themselves by filling in that little word and, you know, just popping it out almost before they've even planned to do it. You know, it's just, it's become automatic to them. So looking at your farm animal toys and the play routines that you use, that's another way to really get a child, help a child learn how to imitate some more and, and use some real words that would be in the context of those little play routines. What are some verbal routines that you do with Farm Animals, Kate? Do you have any that we haven't already talked about or we already talked about all of those? Hmm. Boy, I'm putting you on the spot tonight. <laughs> you are a
0: lot. Um, you know, I honestly, a lot of the verbal routines I use, I use... I'm not going to say irrespective of the toy, but with a variety of toys, not just the farm animals. You know, I well, use that's why they're so
1: effective. Night, right. Yeah.
0: I use the same night, night routine with the baby dolls that I use with the farm animals that I use with Thomas, that I use with the kid himself. That, sure. You know what I mean? So they hear it and hear it and hear it and hear it, and it is that familiarity that makes it fun and makes it interesting. For kids who don't necessarily tune into language particularly well, once they've heard it and heard it and heard it and heard it, their little ears perk up and their little eyes start twinkling and it's like you have a shared experience and they come to, you know, they blossom through that. But so it's hard for me to say with just the animals because really all my routines I pretty much, if I'm on, use them with a variety of things. But the night-night routine is a big one I do. I always do some sort of up-and-down thing because that's so much fun and enticing for for our population. Um, I always do something with eat. I always do something with uh, drink, run, fall, boom. You know, lots yeah. of kids. Those are the things that really get them. So if that's that kind of kid, and a lot of my kids tend to be that way. You know, they like to crash and burn themselves. Those, that's, you know, yeah. I, mean, I refer to them as <laughs> the crashers and burners. I just mean they're high-energy, active kids who typically don't sit still for very long. When you mm-hmm. work that sort of thing into into play, a lot of times it will hold their attention a little better. So all of those kinds of things are definitely going to be a part of it. Um, I, those are the big ones. I'm trying to think if there's anything really unique to farm animals that I do. I don't know that there is. Um
1: but I think that's why it makes it so effective because if you've right. done it with several different toys, then they totally know what to expect. And you're probably hearing and and certainly seeing them demonstrate those, those little fun um, actions from context to context to context or from toy to toy to toy. And that's when kids really own those routines. That's when they really are demonstrating to you that they understand the words and they're able to follow those, again, sequence those actions. You know, when when you play the night-night game, how do you play it? How do you do it? Um,
0: I usually say, um, again, I always try and work in the adjective that describes the action. So for that right. one, I usually try and work in sleepy or tired. I usually say tired, but... I go on about, oh, it's night. Oh, they're tired. They need to go night, 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 night. Tell them night, night. Shh. shh, Night, night. And then I snore. (laughs) (laughs) Real big and exaggerated. (laughs) And I say, time to wake up. One, two, three. Wake up. And then I, usually I'm hoping the kid's playing along with me but if they're not, I kind of scatter the people or shake the people or, you know, the cow or whatever was sleeping, and make a big ruckus about the wake-up period. And I usually try and get them to do it as many times as I can. Exactly.
1: And that's what makes it so effective, though, because you're doing it, again, over and over and over with this toy, and then the next toy that you get out, that that would be an appropriate routine to do, you would introduce it with too, and so that's so effective, and I, I I love that, and I hope that we're helping therapists and parents think about how they can pull th- those little routines in from other toys that they've used, if they're relative and applicable, or even loosely related. You want to bring that in when you're playing with your farm animals too. But a great way to help kids generalize and carry over what words mean and how to use them from. Um, you know, than among a variety of toys. So, those are some great ideas. I think we talked about this last week how an important cognitive milestone that we can target in play is with farm animals is learning how to play with two toys together. Did we talk about that some last week? Do you remember?
0: doesn't really ring a bell for me too much, but okay. it doesn't mean okay. we didn't.
1: Well, well, let me just hit the high point for that. <laughs> I think that we did, but I'm not quite sure. I know I talked about it on Therapy Tip of the Week, the video. And if, Right. Have I missed yeah. that tonight yeah. already? If you no, haven't watched, so. okay, Therapy Tip of the Week, is the latest one, the date on it was eight 8.30, 12. And so if you haven't watched Therapy Tip of the Week from last week, this these couple of shows, last week's podcast and this week's podcast, are based on the Therapy Tip of the Week video that I did um, on August 3rd about using farm animals. And in that video, I talked about how important it is for children to learn how to use two toys together and how that really expands their ability to play, and it also is an important cognitive milestone. A lot of our kids with developmental disabilities really like to play with one toy at a time, and they may do an action with a toy. So say if they were playing with a cat with your farm toys, they may make the cat walk, they may make the cat drink, they may do some other things. But then when you try to um, use a cat with another object, they may balk a little bit about this. Boy, do we see this when our little guys start to play with tractors and you want them to try to make the man sit in the tractor to drive the tractor. That can send some kids over the edge. <laughs> they do not like that. Have you had kids get mad about that?
0: Oh, yes. And I never quite understand it, but yes.
1: Well, <laughs> I think it's because they haven't really mastered the whole we're going to use two objects together. Some kids, now this is generally better, but I have had some kids even resist hooking wagon on. Now some kids will, that's what gets them over the edge or kind of helps them get over that hump. They may not let the farmer drive the tractor, but they'll want to hook the wagon on the tractor all day long and think that's fun. And so then the next thing that you would try to get them to do is maybe load animals in the back. And so, again, you're teaching them how to play with more than one toy at a time. The reason that that is so important for language development is until you can get a kid to really join actions together like that or join objects together or sequence that way, they're not able to fit things with language. And so, receptively, they're not going they're to be not, able to... Say it again. They're not able to what? To sequence or join things, concepts together with language. So if you're looking okay. at it from a, from a receptive language perspective, they're not going to be able to follow two-step commands because they're still at that single action, single object, one thing at a time cognitive level. But when you teach them, okay, even if they're resistant to the man driving the tractor, that we're going to hook the wagon on and put some animals in and then drive it to the barn. You know, those are three or four little things in a row. And so you're helping them learn how to sequence that, and the theory is with language, then they're able to join those things together. So they're going to get to the point that they can follow two-step commands. And expressively, they're to the point that they can join two words together to form a phrase. And so when you have kids that that are cognitively not able to do that, when they're not able to sequence a couple of different actions in play or follow a two step direction they're usually not able to do generate a novel phrase on their own or may you know use a lot of two and three word phrases because they're conceptually not at that point yet that's a little bit deep for this show, <laughs> <laughs> but it's true <laughs> and that's what the theory teaches us is that children before language-wise, before they get to the phrase level, and before they, and think about it, with receptive language, children are usually following two-step commands before you're going to hear a ton of phrases, and this would be spontaneous phrases they've introduced or initiated on their own, you know, not echolonic, not holistic phrases, but things that they're coming in with, their receptive language is usually good enough that they're following two-step commands. I mean, we want to see children master two-step commands at that 21 to 24-month developmental level, and usually those spontaneous phrases are coming in at that same time or right after it. So it's the cognitive ability to join multiple actions or multiple objects together that makes them be able to understand it with receptive language and then use it with expressive language.
0: Does that make sense to you? It, it makes, makes sense. sense okay. It makes That's sense. The theory. I don't know that I ever thought it through that fully. It does make good sense. Um, and I would certainly say that your theory holds with those kids who have had have difficulty yeah. using two things together in play. Are they following two-step commands routinely? No. Are they no. using two- or three-word phrases routinely? No. No. So and when it, you it holds start, true. So
1: I I think it holds true. And so when I see a kid who isn't able to play with two objects together, or let's say this is what will happen. You'll give him the trains, or let's keep it to farm animals, or or you'll give him the farm set, and he wants to take one tractor over in the corner all by himself, lay on his stomach, and watch the wheels. I mean that's when right. we see it, and you try to get him back, and you're trying to do everything you can to get him to let's drive the tractor in the barn, let's, let's let the child drive the tractor, you know, anything you can do, and they are just so resistant to that. And the theory would be cognitively they're not able to join those actions together yet. So cognitively, and so they're still, again, probably below that 18 month level. They can't do it yet. And so I think it holds true. Anytime that I've seen a kid like that and time I'm thinking, okay, oh, how are we going to go to the next level? Play is where you do want to work on that and really help them learn how to do more things, more actions, sequence more things, you know, do more than just I want to lay on the floor and watch the wheels. You know, you've got to get them. And, again, with tractors, hooking the wagon on, I think it's the most effective way to help them go because, boy, don't they like that. They may never have seen that before, but they'll usually think that's pretty fun. And then that gives you an end to put something in the trailer and to then take the tractor to the barn and dump the contents of the trailer out. And so you're usually able to sequence and get more things going in that way rather than I'm just going to play with one thing in a really restricted uh, manner. And so start to watch for that, Kate, and you'll have to give us a little report on that if you think that theory holds true. I think it holds true with most children. Oh, you
0: know, I, think I think it, think it about would definitely hold true. I just have never heard the theory behind it or thought it through myself well enough to say, yeah, there is a big connection there. Um, for those people listening saying how do you teach them how to get them to do that when what they want to do is lay on their bellies and watch them, which we do get those kids. um, You know, they want to get their one little piece and lay there and play with it. I really discourage that kind of play during my sessions. I usually try and make a joke about we're not night-night, get up, get up. You can't lay down. Whatever I have to do, I tickle them. I, you know, I really... I see um, sometimes folks, parents, therapists, whatever, let kids engage in that kind of play for longer than I think is reasonable. Um, I do caution against that because I think that's that they do on their own very well. They don't really need practice doing that. <laughs> you, know? Exactly. you know, they need help. <laughs> They're they great at that already.
1: With... Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: And most kids, now I've had a few on my caseload, over the years who really got upset. But most of my kids, once they at least know me, they know that I don't really allow too much of that. And because I address it in a really playful way, normally I can get them out of it. Um, and up, I want, them, I want them to be sitting. I want them to be, you know, I'm hunched over so that they're, we're close. And Bye. I want them to be able to engage in eye contact with me, Uh, to respond to what I'm saying, my facial expressions, everything, and them laying on the floor shuts all of that down. So um, once once I get them up, I want to try and get them to engage in more purposeful play. Um, And even if it is pushing the tractor, then I'm going to be pushing a tractor too. And lo and behold, my... My tractor will probably crash their tractor, and you know, because I, I want them to be more social in their play and for them to be uh, more, well, for their play to be beyond roll it and watch it. So. Right.
1: And so usually when kids are doing that, they're getting that it's that visual self-stimulatory piece. They're watching the wheels, and they're watching them go around and around and around. It's very akin to watching a ceiling fan or opening and closing a door or anything that would give them that little visual feedback. And we do see it a lot of times with kids on the spectrum or with kids that just have other sensory issues or with kids that there's a cognitive piece. But again, it always kind of goes back to they're not able to play with two things together, and so you've got to bring that other piece in and I love what you said about you take your tractor and crash that with them, and that's exactly what you do with kids who tend to be hoarders and who want to hold they don't want you playing with them well, you have to get you have to use a duplicate toy so that you're going to be able to engage them and that happens a lot where a therapist will or a mom or somebody will just think, well, I'm just going to take it from them and then that's enough of that. We're just not going to play with it that way. Well, then pretty soon, you know, you've gone through 15 toys trying to do that, and so that strategy may not be effective for that particular kid. So if I have a kid like that, I do exactly what you you mentioned is get another tractor, and so we're both going to have tractors. And so, Or if you have a kid who doesn't want to let you hold the bubble stick, you know, they want to. You're probably going to need two bubble sticks. You know, that holds true from toy to toy to toy. So when you have those kids that are like that, or who are constantly trying to snatch it out of your hand, you're probably going to need two, so that it doesn't become a big power struggle. And I do it exactly what you do. I'm not letting them, you know, like before and do that. They're they're going to need to sit up and play. And if you know if that means I'm saying let us make it fly or just do anything silly to. Get them up. You know, that's what you're going to need to do. A lot of times those kids, I'll pick them up and just plop them in my lap and then we're right back to whatever toy we were playing together, but they're sitting up and they're playing. And and sometimes that will make a child mad, but more often than not, it redirects it and you can get them re-engaged and playing with you. Excuse me, even if they're not really... Um, you kinda of did it a little bit before when you picked them up and plopped them in your lap, but it still gets them off the floor and gets them reengaged. Uh and I do prefer for children to be face with me when we play, but there are some children who are going to do better when they're at that point if you're giving them some sensory input and boy, a big old warm lap <laughs> can provide a lot of sensory input to those kids and they'll like it and tolerate it. And then even if they don't they're out of your lap, but they're still kinda of right there with you. They're reengaged and they're not they're not on the floor on their tummies. So that was a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up. All right. So I think we are at the end of our farm animal um idea show. Oh, hope that
0: that oh my doesn't. gosh, we're at the end of the hour. How did we take another hour on that? <laughs> We did. We did. It's really yeah, more gonna... complex than it sounds on paper. I mean it's 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 there's a, a lot. lot to engaging kids uh in yeah. this type of play who aren't who that it's not natural for, you know, because right. some kids right. you could sit down and do all the things that we said don't do and even that would work beautifully. We're we're talking about the kids that have difficulty sure. with these activities and sure. um, what do you do when you have difficulties? Because we deal yeah. with them all the time. <laughs> yeah, and we just want to be sure that. Anybody who we're has any other that. tricks, feel free to tell us because we are not afraid to use anything that works.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So send us your farm animal ideas. We'd love to hear them. Last thing I want to say is don't forget to target receptive language when you're cleaning up, when you're done with the barn and you're putting it away. Whether you're putting all the animals back in the barn or whether you use those two-and-a-half-gallon Ziplocs like I do in all of my DVDs Uh, and every therapy session I do, you can, oh, receptive language is such a natural partner to cleaning toys up. And so you would give instructions like get the cow, get the pig, clean up tractor, you know, uh, put horse in, whatever you've worked on. You can really see in... um, with receptive language when you're cleaning up what a kid understands and what he doesn't. So don't miss that opportunity, and don't get stuck cleaning up the toy while the kid runs off to the next fun thing. You're missing half your therapy that way. Uh, it and is true, great- Laura.
0: That's a big lesson I've learned from you over the years. And sometimes that's when you have their most undivided attention and their biggest effort, particularly if they know the next thing is something they love but that right. you've already taught them that really they have to participate in the cleanup part. Um yeah. yeah, all of a sudden you think, "Oh, he did know the cow, the sheep, the dog and the horse today." You know, because yeah, he exactly. when you told him to get them, by gummy got them. Yeah.
1: So, and it's a great way to measure that too and you don't have to, you know, set up a situation where you're really um lining up the cow and the horse and the pig and the dog and saying, where's the dog, where's the horse? You know, you're doing it in the context of the activity with cleaning up. And that's what I love about that, too. If you need some help with knowing how to do that, there's some great examples on my receptive language DVDs, which they're called Teach Me to Listen and Obey, Volume 1 and Volume 2. And Volume 2 has tons of examples with... um, I think there's farm animals on there, but also other similar play activities where you're really working on following directions and that effective language piece. And, again, I think that is the most overlooked deficit or delay in late talkers is we don't pay enough attention to how children really understand words. And they absolutely have to understand words before they can say words or they can use words to communicate. So, um don't forget about receptive language, and, again, cleaning up is a perfect time to target that. All right, and on that note, we are wrapping up our farm animals idea uh, series. And like Kate said, please send us your cute ideas. We would love to use them and see them and talk about them on um, a later show. Any other final words, Kate? No, that's it. All right. I'm going to remember that, uh,
0: that two-toy thing and teaching the opposite opposites. Of prepositions together because I make that whole day.
1: Well, there you go. <laughs> okay, bye. Thanks so much. Bye. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky?
0: In line at the deli, I guess? ha! in my dentist's office.